0: Grab your Bibles, 2 Samuel 8. 2 Samuel 8. uh, Lord willing, we'll we'll do a whole chapter. Uh, It took us a few weeks to get through 7. Hopefully, we'll get through the entire chapter, chapter 8. It's really a straightforward chapter. You read through it, and uh, you know what happens. David went to war. David won. Now, that's that's pretty much it. Let's all pray and go home, right? Fried chicken's calling us. Now, we we know what the Lord is doing here is important. Chapter 8, page 286, I believe, of your pew Bibles. If you will, stand with me. Out of reverence for God's holy word. The writer of 2 Samuel writes on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. After this, David defeated the Philistines and subdued them. And David took Methic Emma, that will be on your quiz, out of the hand of the Philistines. And he defeated Moab and he measured them with a line, making them lie down on the ground. Two lines he measured to be put to death, one full line to be spared. And the Moabites became servants to David and brought tribute. David also defeated Hadad. Hadad Ezer, the son of Rahab, king of Zobah, as he went to restore his power at the river Euphrates. David took from him 1,700 horsemen, 20,000 foot soldiers, and David hamstrung all the chariot horses but left enough for 100 chariots. When the Syrians of Damascus came to help Hadad, Hadad Ezer, king of Zobah, David struck down 22,000 men of the Syrians. Then David put garrisons in Aram and of Damascus. The Syrians became servants to David and brought tribute. The Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. And David took the shields of gold that were carried by the servants of Hadad Ezer and brought them to Jerusalem. And from Betah and from Barathai, cities of Hadad Ezer, King David took very much bronze. When Toy, see, this is a toy story. There you go, Mark. King of Hamath heard that David had defeated the whole army of Hadad Ezer. Toi sent his son Joram to King David to ask about his health and to bless him because he had fought against Hadadezer, defeated him. For Hadadezer had often been at war with Toi, and Joram brought with him articles of silver, of gold, and of bronze. These also King David dedicated to the Lord together with the silver and the gold that he dedicated from all the nations he subdued, from Edom and Moab, the Ammonites, the Philistines, the Amalek, uh, and from the spoil of Hadadezer, the son of Rehob, king of Je- Zobah. David made a name for himself when he returned from striking down 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. Then he put garrison in Edom. Throughout all Edom, he put garrisons in all Edomites, became David's servants, and the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. So David reigned over all Israel. David administered justice and equity to all his people. Joab, the son of Zeruiah, was, was over the army, and Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilab, was recorder. Zadok, the son of Ahitab, and Ahimelech, the son of Abiathar, were priests. Seri uh were secretary, and Benaiya, the son of Jehoiada, was over the Cherithites and the Pelethites, and David's sons were priests. That's why I went to seminary, to be able to pronounce all that. Right? Let's go, Lord, in prayer. Our Father, thank you for your love and your mercy, giving us this word. I know for many of us right now, we think, what in the world that we just read? But there is so much here. Uh, that points us to Jesus. May we not miss Jesus. Open our eyes and our hearts, our minds, our ears, our mouth, our hands, our feet to go in obedience to Christ transformed by the gospel. May I decrease so you can increase. Name your son we pray. Amen. May be seated. I don't know if you read a lot of books or watch a lot of movies, but any more, particularly in Hollywood, that if if a film franchise does well, you'll get the sequels, but it won't be long before you have to get The prequels and prequels can be good, often give you the origin story of of, of these characters or that event or whatever it might be. But there's a major, major problem with prequels. The problem is, is that the characters that are in the prequels that are in the main film franchise, you know, they're going to make it through the end. Think about it. If, if, if you watch Lord of the Rings, Gandalf is doing his thing, right? And you're like, man, I really liked Lord of the Rings. I want more from Middle Earth. They say, well, you know, there's a movie, The Hobbit, which for the movies is a type of prequel. I know it's not that in, in the book since the Hobbit came out first. So, so you're going to go back in history and there is Bilbo and Gandalf, two characters in the trilogy. And immediately, you know, no matter what danger they're in, what, what forests they may find themselves in, what, what goblins may threaten to do to them, you know they ain't going to die. They're going to make it just fine because you know exactly what happens after the movie or the book or whatever is over with because you know they're there. That's a big problem with prequels is the risk your characters take. It's been sort of ruined, hasn't it? We have something similar going on here. Remember that the Davidic covenant in chapter 7 is out of chronological order. Now, the reason the writer does that is for thematic reasons and literary reasons, but he puts it there early so, so we can so set us up for what is coming. And, and as a model of grace, God does this despite all of David's failures. But you remember in chapter 7, we were told that God brought rest to all of David's enemies, right? He defeated them all. And it isn't until chapter 8 that we actually see how God did that. So we already know that God is going to do it. Here in chapter eight is really a brief summary of how God goes about and does it. Let's start here in verses one to 14 with the message that the Lord gives victory. Now what you'll find in these 14 verses is is David's campaigns are organized largely by uh, geography. We start with the west in verse 1 David defeats the Philistines. Now we've already read this story. And go back to 2 Samuel 5, David defeated them twice at the Valley of the Rephaim. Remember Rephaim means giants. And, of course, the, the, the Philistines have been a constant nuisance for the Israelites, particularly in the days of the judges and the uh, united monarchy. That word subdued there in verse 1 is the same word used to describe Saul's defeat of the Philistines in 1 Samuel 7. And then so we, we got the Philistines to the west, to the east, and in verse 2 we meet the Moabites. Now, this is interesting detail here. The Moabites should have been allies of Israel. Biologically, they come from common ancestry. Uh, Their patriarch is Lot, Abraham's nephew, which means the father of Abraham was the grandfather of Lot. They can trace their ancestry back to the same individual also remember that David was the great grandson of a Moabitess by the name of Ruth. You can see that, of course, in the eponymous book of her name. Moab uh, also welcomed David in. You may remember when he's running from Saul, he actually has to leave the nation. He goes to Moab, in fact, trusts uh, the Moabites with his family, his, his parents and his, his, his uh, wife and all, all of that. And um, now, what's motivated there is actually David was a uh, fighter for the Moabites at one point. What, what you're probably getting there is from the Moabites' perspective is the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And if Saul doesn't like David, we like David, right? Well, though they should have been allies, they were constant enemies, Israel and Moab. You go all the way back to Numbers 22 and 25. Remember, it was the Moabites who hired Balaam, the prophet, to put a curse upon the Israelites. And that is really the genesis of the animosity. So God there curses Moab, cementing the animosity between the two nations. And However, unlike most conquerors, it should be noted here, David does not kill everybody. Most conquerors would have done that. Rather, he spares um, a third of them. So we've gone west, we've gone east. Verses 3 through 11, we go north. And here he defeats several enemies. First, Zobah, with its king headed headed Ezer. He's all over the map, isn't he? The the son of Rehab. You see it there in verses 3 to 5. Um, This, by defeating him, David gets control of part of the Euphrates River. And that is significant for military purposes, political purposes, economic purposes, Right. I mean, we get this right. If if you were to travel around the United States, can I mean, you know where all the major cities are? Right, they're on rivers. Cincinnati, St. Louis, New Orleans. Wherever you go, that it, where there's water, there will be a city. Right. We we get this right. So if you ever stranded in the desert, <laughs> find water or you die. And where you find an abundance of water, you will find a city. Well, same thing here. By defeating Zobah, he gets access to the Euphrates River, can set up military garrisons. Part of the, the trade routes go right through there. He also defeats the Syrians. Your Bible may see the Arameans, which is actually a better term. It's, a, it's not just Syria. It's, it's a number of, of nations and city-states. So, so they come to help Zobah. And so David has to pe- defeat both armies. He beats 20,000 soldiers of one, 22,000 soldiers of the other, and the Syrians, or really the Arameans, become uh, tributaries to David. And then there is Hamath uh, with its king, Toy. This guy, he realizes, he's looking around and says, David's whooping this guy. He's whooping that guy. I don't want to be in that list. He also has other motivations here where he says, look, if David defeats my enemy for me, I'm on team David, right? The enemy of my enemy is my friend. And so Toy uh, joins David, or at least is willing to, to pay tribute to him. He makes peace to him by giving articles of silver, gold, and of bronze. These will all be added to the temple. You remember that David cannot build the temple. Solomon will do that. But David provides all the material for the temple, the wood, the silver, all of that sort of stuff. And this is part of it. Uh, he is in his military campaigns. Uh, he 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 gets for himself a lot of coins and will donate it to uh, for the temple construction and dedication. Finally, we come to the south verses twelve to fourteen, and this is another summary. Right, Edom the, they are descendants of Esau, so that animosity goes all the way back to the womb. Remember that it was Jacob holding all the Esau's. Uh, angle there, Moab and the Ammonites. We've already talked about the Moabites. The uh, Moab and Ammon are both uh, brothers, uh, or not brothers; they're cousins, first cousins. Uh, they, 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 they. Uh, so, so yeah, they, they. Well, it's lots kids. If you come to our Wednesday nights, you know what happens. Amalek is, is a major enemy of uh, uh, of Israel. Uh, particularly during the Exodus. It was the Malachites. Remember that, that they were to, to destroy. I believe it was the Malachites when Moses had to hold his arms up. You Bible guys can... The only thing we learn in seminary is how to read long, difficult names. Everything else we just figured out. Uh, they were descendants of Esau's grandson. So, so uh, David here is defeating Esau's descendants and grandson's descendants. You remember that God ordered Saul to kill all of them, which he did not. Uh, As a result, David is forced to fight them here. Uh, And later, a a, a descendant of the Amalekite king, Agag. Uh, The descendant is a man by the name of Haman. Um, He will try to destroy Israel under Persian rule. Remember, Saul refused to kill all the Amalekites, and King Agag was one of them. Well, he had a descendant years, generations later named uh, Haman. Haman is the one that goes against Esther and Mordecai and all of them. And he's, he's later hung on the very... Uh, tree, if you will, that uh, he built for the Israelites. Well, um, one of the things to note here is, if 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 this were a different document, if this were an Egyptian document or a Persian document or Babylonian document, what would follow is a paragraph of David taking credit for himself, right? Just bragging, like look look how awesome I am, and this is what you get throughout history and uh, we get this in archaeology all, all the time, is that kings take credit for themselves for every victory. Uh, after all, it was their army, their administration, their generals, their strategy, their victory. And archaeology has uncovered endless amount of carbon. In fact, whenever you see a tale of a battle, and let's say Pharaoh wins a battle, um, that probably happened. But the details is like worse than your average fishing story in the South, right? Or like a turkey hunting story, right? There I was, three in the morning, frost coming off every breath I took, right? And there she was, a butte, a a 20-pound buck. Never seen one like this, but she was calling my, you know, right? Uh, Whenever I was a youth pastor, we went fishing a lot, and we always joked, you know, how big was a fish was it? Chaw big, chal big, or chaw big, right? That's well. They were always chal big, even though it was a bluegill, right? You know, and so you can't always trust some of those accounts. But was a victory? Was a battle fought? Yes. Was a victory made? Probably. The details, eh, maybe, maybe. That's, that's why you need multiple sources when, when available. There's a good example of this actually in in film. It's in the movie Troy. Uh, Achilles is talking to King Agamemnon. And Achilles and they're not getting along. Agamemnon says, or Achilles rather says, apparently you want some great victory, King. Agamemnon says, Ah, perhaps you didn't notice the Trojan beach belonged to Priam in the morning. It belongs to Agamemnon in the afternoon. Notice Yeah, it. yeah I did it. Right? right? He was in the back boat, you know, knitting or something. I don't know. Achilles, you can have the beach. I didn't come here for the beach. Agamemnon, no, you came here because you want your name to last through the ages. A great victory was won today, but that victory is not yours, says the king. Kings did not kneel to Achilles. Kings did not pay homage to Achilles. Achilles says, Perhaps the kings were too far behind to see the soldiers won the battle. Agamemnon responds, History remembers kings, not soldiers. Tomorrow will batter down the gates of Troy. I'll build monuments to victory on every island of Greece. I'll carve Agamemnon in the stone. And that's what you get throughout history. Every battle you had to say, aren't I great? We get this in the Bible too. Remember Nebuchadnezzar goes crazy in Daniel 4? Remember what was the genesis of that? He looks out at his city and says, aren't I a really good king? Look at what I accomplished. And he goes mad. Or consider Herod in Acts twelve. You remember this? The people were shouting, "The voice of a god and not a man." And Luke says he didn't contradict that. He's like, "Well, I kind of like these high poll numbers I'm getting." And of course, he was then eaten by worms. The narrative emphasizes that this was not David's victories. It was God's grace that gave the victory. God had chosen David, remember the promise made in chapter 7. To the nations, David may have made a name to himself. You see it there in verse 13. But David knew that God deserved all the credit and all the glory. Now, it is tempting for us, and I think there's room for for us to make the application that we should learn to give God praise and glory for all the blessings that we receive. And I think that is exactly true. I think that is a good application we can draw from this passage. And we talked about that some last week, didn't we? Remember that that David uh, responds to the promises of God with gratitude to God. And here we see God carrying out that promise for David. And the response should be the same, gratitude for God's grace. But I don't think that's what the writer wants us to see. What we are to see here in these victories, is that David's triumphs are a precursor of Christ's. David's kingdom was not a perfect kingdom, and soon we'll see just how imperfect it was. But it was a preliminary one. It exemplifies the final kingdom of Christ. You see, conflict precedes conquest. Just as David makes war against the nations and establishes his kingdom, so shall Christ. Christ's kingdom will ultimately come by force and by victory. This is a part of the Bible that we we as Americans don't like. We love a meek and mild Jesus. Let all the children hang out with me and and we'll go bowling with the youth group. We, We love that type of Jesus. But we don't handle oftentimes is the mean and wild Jesus, the one with a whip in, in church or the one with a sword pursuing from his mouth. Conquering the nations. This is exactly what it is we see in the Bible. Notice here that David conquers the nations as preliminary for what we see in Christ who will will defeat all the nations of the earth. Isaiah 11, 4. By the way, Isaiah 11 is predominantly about the future peace of the kingdom. This is where you get the lion will lay down the lamb, little boy will play with the poison snakes and all that. But right here in the middle, you get he, this is future messianic Christ, shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, with the breath of his lips, he shall kill. The wicked, he shall kill the wicked. Joel in chapter 3, we looked at this a few years ago. Proclaim this among the nations consecrate for war, stir up the mighty men. Let all the men of war draw near, let them come up. Hasten and come, all you surrounding nations, and gather yourself there. Bring down your warriors, O Lord. Let the nations stir themselves up, for there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. In fact, you know that in Isaiah, it says to, to beat your swords in the plowshares, right? That's the language of peace. And Joel, it says, beat the plowshares into swords. We're going to war. And he's talking to the nations. This is going to come to an end. And I will win. Zechariah 14. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle. Then The Lord will go out and fight against those nations. On that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives. Then The Lord, my God, will come and all the holy ones with him. Paul, even in 1 Thessalonians uh, 7 to 8, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. We'll look at Revelation 19-9, another scene where Jesus shows up on a white horse, not for a parade, but for battle, for war. What we see here is preliminary. Now, this warlike language should make sense in light of the cross. Salvation does not come apart from blood. Christ sheds his own blood at his first coming to establish his kingdom. This is why Jesus speaks of a kingdom that is and is yet to come. And when it comes, it will come through war. The evil of the nations, the wickedness of the world, demands a savior who will be king. Demands a lamb who will turn to a lion. Who will reign and those who resist him will be dealt with. You remember that the point of Israel was to continue the point of Eden. Eden was a, garden, uh, uh, was a garden inside of Eden. And, and as man and woman uh, tilled the ground, their, their, their influence would, would expand, right? And eventually to, to cover the earth through vice regions and offspring, and they would, they would continue to expand the borders of the garden itself so that the, the, the earth itself would become a garden. What is Israel to be? It is where, where God's presence is among his people, and they were to extend the borders of Israel to reach the nations. But Israel failed at that. So then what do we get with Christ? We get Christ who's, whose gospel was planted among the nations, spreads within the nations, and today will come Christ will rule the nations. This is great hope of the Bible. That's why I want to suggest to you. This passage is less about David. It is more about Christ. We can look at the Edomites and the Cherithites and those who aren't right, but the real hope here is that Christ will come, Christ will rule and reign forever and ever and ever. And a big part of that is that injustice and evil and wickedness will be no more. Can I prove it to you from the text? The Lord gives us justice. Here we see in verses 15 to 18, isn't it? Throughout First and Second Samuel, entire sections uh, end with summary statements. Matthew does the same thing in his Gospels, and we, we won't look at them. Uh, chapter 7 uh, concludes the Samuel section. Chapter 14 of 1 Samuel concludes the Saul section. This concludes the first of the David section. So you get the, the rise of David to be king, and then, then, then the rest of the book is the final section of, of David. So this is really just a summary statement, but what is there is quite rich. We could spend an entire week on it. I won't torture you that way. You're going to get out late anyway, so. But this section shows that victory in warfare is different from leading a nation. Have you ever thought about that? There's a framework. We've watched enough politics that there are some politicians who are really good campaigners, not the best leaders, right? I mean, uh, I've got a few here, but some are on the left, some are on the right. It doesn't matter what their names are. I'll give you one. Ronald Reagan, for example, was a governor who almost upset the, in the primaries, the sitting president of the United States. I, that's not a small deal. Uh, Billy Clinton, right? He, he was a nobody from Arkansas. I mean, that's like, where's being from Kentucky? He's from Arkansas, and, and he, he, he passed everybody up to become, uh, not only to win his party's nomination, some really good uh, campaigners. I'll let you decide if they were good leaders, but great, great campaigners, right? Some are great leaders. Terrible campaigners. There was one guy in particular I thought, man, this guy would be a great president. I watched one campaign speech. He don't stand a chance. He put me to, 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 to sleep. I mean, like, well, some of you all know what I'm talking about on Sundays, right? I mean, how can you be an effective leader and not a good campaigner? How can some be such a good campaigner and not a leader? You get this with kings, right? History is full of, of examples of great warriors who are terrible kings. Some who are great kings, there's not very good warriors. David here exemplifies both. He managed, through the help of Yahweh, to win battles and to promote justice. In essence, David fulfills the expectation of the Jewish king. We'll look at these real quick. Uh, if you, if, uh, the details are primarily in Deuteronomy uh, 17. You can look at them on your own. I've got, I've got the references here, but uh, just read chapter 17 of Deuteronomy. You'll see it. First of all, the king must not be greedy. Right? You'll notice here, what does David do? He, 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 he gets rid of all the chariots. He doesn't keep them all. Right? He can't be greedy. You can't be amassing for yourself. Fortune and women and, and prizes and nations, all this sort of stuff. Can't be greedy. It's verses 16 to 17, Deuteronomy 17. Secondly, he must be obedient. Contrary to human pride and leadership, we are under the authority of a far greater king. Kings need to remember that. One of the most radical thing that Protestantism gave to the Western world is the idea that the law is above the king. The king is never above the law. We are all under some authority, no matter how high up we may get in society, including the king. There is a true and better king and we are under. He must be obedient and follow the law, have it before him at all times. Thirdly, he must promote justice. This is found throughout the Bible about the king. Uh, by justice, a king builds up the land. He who extracts gifts, tears it down. Notice there, justice and greed do not go hand in hand. Uh, Isaiah 32, behold, a king will reign in righteousness and princes will rule in justice. One more, 1 Kings 10. Blessed be the Lord your God who has delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel. This is speaking of Solomon, I believe. Because the Lord loved Israel forever, he has made you king so that you may execute justice and righteousness. It's really the, the hope. Uh, purpose of the king. And this is the true legacy of David. What matters, the legacy of David is not the battles he won, the land he conquered, the lengths of his reign, the psalms he wrote, or the book sales of his memoirs. What matters most is did he promote justice? Did he promote peace? By the way, those standards haven't changed today. Leadership It matters less if your party is better off because of you. But have you promoted justice and peace, especially in positions of leadership? Well, in this summary section, David ruled with wisdom and trusted his skilled administrators. I wish we had time to go through all of them. They're fascinating guys. We'll meet some of them again. We've met some of them previously. um, But we, we won't do that. But just as David's victories are a precursor of Christ, so too David's kingdom is a precursor of Christ. Although he's an imperfect ruler, the tone of David's rule is a precursor of what it is that we long for. What is it that we want more than anything? We want to live in peace. We want to live in a world that is just. We want to live in a world that is good. But all of that has been lost because of sin. Oftentimes we think that if, 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 we, if we elect the right person, we entertain ourselves enough, we can dull the senses. If we, if we do this or that, we can finally reach that world. And yet after thousands and thousands of, of, of years of human history, we have failed constantly. Why? Because our hope isn't in who we elect. Our hope isn't in the one who has the power. Our hope is in the son of David who will rule and reign. He will have the victory. He will bring with him justice and peace. This is the hope of scripture, isn't it? Psalm 33, 5, he loves righteousness and justices. Justices, that's not even a word. Not even a Hebrew, justice. Uh, Psalm 36, your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. A man and beast you, you save. Psalm 99, 4, uh, the king in his might loves justice. You, that is, God, have established equity. You have executed justice. Right. Notice there, a righteous king is the one who loves the same thing that God loves. Isaiah 5.16, the Lord of hosts is exalted in justice. The holy God shows himself holy in righteousness. Jeremiah 9.24, let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, practice justice and righteousness in the earth finally Amos 5:24 uh, those of you who 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 are familiar with Martin Luther King Jr. he would quote this often let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever flowing stream where does such righteousness and justice flow from throne room of God how is it that Christ rules and reigns he rules in justice Again, we don't look to kings and princes and presidents for hope, but to Christ whose kingdom is ruled justly. And here this, dear church, you and I have an obligation among each other to exemplify what that kingdom looks like right now. And too often, we're too busy fighting each other than promoting peace with each other. If God's kingdom is coming, God's kingdom begins with his people. David ruled not just with victory, but with justice. This is why we enter God's king, kingdom by confessing Christ. We must choose to look and live differently, but, but too often we don't. But the good news is the day will come when justice will be the norm, peace will be the norm, because a true and better David will rule and reign the world. That's our hope. Why then do we get distracted by lesser things? I know we we all long for peace and justice. In Israel, they thought David was he who would bring it. But as the narrative will show, we talked about last Sunday evening. It's it's a temporary peace. It's a temporary justice. We long for an eternal one. In fact, I think one of the main points of this passage, and we err when we think this passage is ultimately about David. I think I can prove it. Verse six, go back and and look look what it says there. David put garrisons in Aram and Damascus. That's where the Arameans come from, Aram, and brought tribute. Notice, how does that sentence, that verse end? It was the Lord who gave victory. So when you see that, you need to go back to the first five verses and it says that the Lord gave David to the Moabites. The Lord gave David to the Philistines. The Lord gave David to the Edomites and Ammonites the Cherithites and all those who are not right. It is the Lord who did that. Then you can go down to verse 14. Then he put garrisons in Edom, throughout all Edom. He put garrisons and all Edomites, became David's servants. And there it is again. And the Lord gave victory. You see it there? It's right there in the text. We err when we think this is all about David. We err when we think all of our accomplishments and all that we seek and all that we desire is ultimately about us. We live our lives to the glory of God. It is the Lord who brings victory. We don't need to look any farther than the cross, do we? There at the cross, Christ won the victory. And he won it for us. Defeating the shame and the guilt of sin and death and Satan himself. We actually just sang about this earlier. I, I just love this perfect. It's amazing. We, we sing these hymns and, and these worship songs and, and you, it's easy to, to go through the motions, but to really pause. We sang this in the old rugged cross, didn't we? didn't we? The old rugged cross, so despised by the world, has a wondrous attraction to me. For the dear Lamb of God left His glory above to bear it to dark Calvary and the old rugged cross stained with blood so divine, a wondrous beauty I see, which was on that crow cross Jesus suffered and died to pardon and to sanctify me. To the old rugged cross I will ever be true, its shame and reproach gladly to bear. Then he'll call me someday to my home far away where his glory forever I'll share. That's the point of the passage. The Lord has won a victory at the cross and he will win the final victory when he returns. (coughs) Let's pray.